Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables. Part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Tales to Terrify and Starship Sofa. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables, Welcome to show number 165. My name is Seth, and I'm your host this week. You'll be hearing from both myself and our audio editor, Mark, for the month of July, while Nicola takes some well-deserved time off. Now, some of you may recognize me as a narrator here at Farfetch Fables, and I also volunteer as a narrator and as an associate editor at Tales to Terrify, one of our sister podcasts here in the District of Wonders. If you haven't listened, please do. You won't be sorry, or maybe you will be. It is a horror podcast. Anyway, this week we present to you The Sickness by Valjean Jeffers. Valjean is a graduate of Spelman College, a member of the Carolina African American Writers Collective, and the author of ten books, including her Immortal series and the Mona Livelong Paranormal Detective series. Her novella, The Switch to Clockwork, was nominated as a Best Ebook Novella of 2013 by the E Festival of Words. Her writing has been published in numerous anthologies, including Sixty Black Women in Horror Fiction, Steampunk, Genesis Science Fiction Magazine, Griots, A Sword and Soul Anthology, Drum Voices Review, Possibilities, Black Gold, and most recently, Fitting In, Historical Accounts of Paranormal Subcultures and Sycorax's Daughters. Valjean is also one of the screenwriters for the horror anthology film Seven Magpies. Her story is read by Aminat Badara, a budding writer and aspiring on-air personality. She loves reading and has a weird penchant for collecting hardcover notebooks and mugs. When she's not writing, or trying to be superhuman, she's either looking for exes to solve, seeing movies, or getting her heart broken by Arsenal FC. Every once in a while, she posts on her blog and on Twitter. And now, The Sickness. The Bini warriors crouched in the high grass of the savannah. They had passed the Fula borders a mile back and now were a hundred yards from the Adobe Mud City. At the forefront, they were armed with sword and shield. Behind them, the archers readied their bows. General Chinua led the army. To his right was Nandi, a tall woman with braided hair, high cheekbones and full lips, and her ebony-skinned husband, Suli, his head shaved in the traditional Bini custom. To Chinua's left was Nandi's older brother, Tumi. A wide gateway led into the Fula kingdom. It was deserted. Where are the gods? Nandi hissed. I don't know, Chinua replied, but I won't return without Fula blood on my sword. The Fula had been violating the Bini borders for months. Three men traveling from the bush to their village had been attacked. Livestock had been stolen. And last week, they had actually tried to kidnap Ifiwat and Iverim, the Oba's own daughters. Only the vigilance of the Bini guards had thwarted their efforts. The general raised his arm and flung it forward. 
the warriors crept through the grass. As they became abreast of the city, shields were snatched back from multicolored doorways. Fuller warriors, armed with bow and arrows, emerged and took deadly aim. Men poured out the gateways. General Chinua rose and gave a loud battle cry, echoed by his warriors. Those beneath with balls and arrows began picking up the less agile Fuller. The rest surged forward, engaging the Fuller in hand-to-hand combat. Nandi, the famed daughter of Abadeguke, charged into the fray. With a howl, she leapt up and stabbed her first opponent in the chest, whipping her sword around to take the head off a second. The Bini warriors fought their way to the gate, Nandi slashing and chopping through the enemy, and inside the city to the conical palace, slaying anyone who dared challenge them. Women and children watched the invaders from doorways. Inside Obagadia's palace, they swept past chambers condoned off with rich fabrics to his throne room. Gadia's five personal guards surged forward. Enough, he shouted. There has been enough bloodshed this day. The upper met their gaze. He was a portly man given to arrogance and vanity. His people followed him more from fear than respect. Beside him stood a tall man dressed despite the heat in a hooded garment. Nandi's eyes were drawn to him. Only the shadow of his visage and red eyes burning like coals were visible from his cowl. This was without doubt Gardia's fabled witch doctor Asu, a sorcerer who had murdered his own twin in supplication to a demon to gain his power. An evil, evil man, she thought. He doesn't even look human. General Chinua raised his head proudly. Your army is defeated, Gardia. Your lands and all you have are now forfeit to Oba. The big man smiled slyly. Such a high price. Perhaps we can come to a reasonable agreement, eh? I should got you, the general snarled. You have violated our borders, insulted our women. Careful, dog, remember your place. You are no chief. In one swift motion, Chinua blurred to the throne and pointed a sword tip at Gadia's huge belly. When I speak, it is Obadeguke's voice you hear and his commands. You will compensate us for your men's thefts. From this day forward, your village belongs to the Bini Kingdom. We will collect a tribute each month. One of our messengers will visit you soon to map out the terms. Do not harm him. Not if you value your life and the life of your people. They rinsed the blood of battle from their dark skins and sopped and roasted yams. Although offered food, they had refused to eat in the Fulak village for fear of being poisoned. Now, the soldiers fed the fire with sticks. It would keep the scavengers away. Leaning against a tree to their right was Gardia's tribute, two bags heavy with cowrie shells that they would take turns carrying home. The night was cool and the air sweet, so they sang. We are mighty. The enemy has been crushed beneath our feet. His cries echo in our ears. We are mighty. Nandi, the Oba's eldest daughter, smiled, Suli beside her. She was the only woman here, but soon there will be others. My rise in their ranks has caught the eyes of my sisters, those like me who would rather hold a sword than pound yams and steer vegetables. Her joy at fighting alongside her husband, Suli, made victory that much sweeter, and their win had extended the Oba's rule. Their defeat will be good news to share with father. A full bright moon saluted the jackalberry and marula trees. In the distance, a lion roared. Sule grinned. Ah, our brother congratulates us for bringing the fuller low. The warriors roared with laughter. Gadia is not such a big man now, Tomi said, with his tribute on our backs. Our village will prepare a feast in our honor, another warrior, Chika, said. Tommy smiled slyly. Yes, I am sure your wife will greet you with many succulent treats. They laughed again raucously, 
Sule looked sheepishly at the men's subtle innuendo, and Nandi reassured him with a glance. A chill lightly brushed her spine and her smile froze. Since leaving the Fuller's village, Nandi had had the feeling that they were being followed, but she hadn't spoken her forebodings aloud. After all, she had been visited by the preternatural once before. It was how she had realized her dream of becoming a warrior, and how she had become the only woman ever to serve in the Biniami. She searched the savannah with keen eyes. Perhaps he is visiting me now. Perhaps... Her thoughts were caught short by a loud wind that blew through their camp, quenching the fire. The moon and stars winked out, leaving them in total darkness and total silence, an eerie, unnatural stillness without birds or predators. Now there was no sound but their ragged, panicked breathing, as if they were afraid to break the silence. What has happened? Nandi reached out for Sully's hand, a hand she could no longer see. Then she felt it. A heavy, malevolent presence watching them directly in front of them, studying them as if they were little more than insects. It vanished. The moon and stars returned and the warriors cut their eyes at each other. But their light-hearted mood and thrill of battle were gone too. No one spoke as they bedded down. It began the next day. The weakness, fever, and coughing. By the time the warriors reached their village borders, they could barely stand. The disease spread quickly, attacking men, women, and children with equal vigor. Nandi alone was mysteriously immune to the illness. But her father, the Oba, and her mother, Mariama, were not. His other three wives and their children were stricken as well. Even Bolaji, the village rich doctor, was so sick he could barely get out of bed. Nandi sat on the floor beside their bed, sponging Sule's face with cool water. Her husband had slipped into unconsciousness that afternoon and now lay in a near comatose state, babbling with fever. How I wish it were me instead. My heart feels like it has been stabbed with a dagger over and over. There was a loud cough behind her. She turned to find their servant girl, Poadi, her eyes listless and hollowed out by the illness. But the girl's eyes burned with something else too. Resentment. They all think I am evil spirit that has brought this illness to my people. How quickly they forget. For just last year it had been Nandi who saved her village from slaughter by the Edo, aided by Ogun, the god of war. The village elders request your presence, Poadi said sullenly, and left without Nandi's permission. She takes liberties because she knows I have fallen out of favor with the elders. Outside, to the right of her father's ivory palace, under the palm tree, sat Obadeguke, with Bolaji on his right. The elders were gathered around her father, two on his left and two on his right. Those villagers strong enough to stand stood outside the circle. As Nandi approached, they glared at her and cleared a path. The elders and Obadeguki were also feverish and had lost weight. But the sickness did not diminish their severe demeanor. Only their chief looked sorrowful as well. The first one, Hoda, speaks from her father's left. Daughter, we allowed you fight. To take up sword and shield that rightfully only a man should. We violated long-held beneath customs, the customs of our ancestors. This has brought the wrath of the gods down upon us. May, may I speak? I am not finished, Odin thundered. It is the decision of Obadeguki and the village elders that you be stripped of your tribal birthright and banished into the wilderness. Speak your final words. It was because of me that you are not dead now, Oedo slaves, Nandi blurted. Gifts from a demon, Bolaji shouted back. And see the price we've paid for it. Go, you are no longer Bini. Leave this village and take your affliction with you. Tears streamed down her face. Banished? And what of my husband, she sobbed. 
The witch doctor shook his staff at her and coughed. You have no husband, no possessions. You will go now with the clothes on your back. Without another word, she turned and stumbled away. The young woman had been walking for hours when she came upon a stream. She was not hungry, but she was thirsty, for the day was hot and dry. And when hunger comes, how will I feed myself without a weapon? Nandi knelt, scooped some water with her hands and drank. Afterward, she watched the tear tracks from her face. Dispiritedly, she stared back down at her reflection in the water. A panther's image stared back at her. She recognized him. In the next moment, Ogun, the god of war, appeared before her as a tall, powerfully built man with skin the color of midnight. A rope of iron hung from his thick neck. Nandi, he rumbled in a bass, profundo voice. I am here, daughter. She bowed her head. Ogun, you honor me once more. Please tell me what has happened. Why is my village dying? It is sorcery, most foul and evil. The witch doctor Asu casts a spell upon the Bini in revenge for your victory and the humiliation of his oba. But I was untouched by his magic. Ogun smiled down at her. I cloaked you, my warrior. She gazed at him in confusion. Ogun, why did you not cloak all of us? Because it is your destiny to do battle with him. He instantly transformed into a huge black panther. Nandi jumped astride his back and wrapped her arms around his neck. Tonight, he said, we travel to the spirit world. They rode with the wind, far from our home, passing trees with glowing bark and tops that grew further than our eye could follow, across blue sand, through lands with the earth above them and the clouds beneath their feet. Finally, they came to a wall of fire. Nandi gripped Ogun's even neck tighter, but she did not cry out. The panther leaped through the fire, emerging into a dimension with a starless sky and blood-red moon. Beneath them lay smooth mahogany dirt, without wrinkle or crevice. Nandi climbed off Ogun's back. Yards ahead stood a castle gleaming whitely in eldritch moonlight. With a gasp, she realized it was crafted from human bones. She felt him watching her again. The cold, inhuman presence she had felt once before Atsu. Ogun vanished. Be brave, the god whispered in her ear. You must enter the castle. Once inside, you'll know what to do. She was afraid, but she was also angry. Angry that anything human or inhuman would try to strip her of what she had fought so hard for. The ancestors had smiled upon her. But her village, her village was dying. Her mother and father were dying. Suli was dying. Asu is trying to steal my world. I will give my life to defend it. A sword appeared in her hand, forged from the iron about Ugun's neck. It was a thing of a fearsome beauty with a shimmering edge and a grip of woven iron. The god's bass voice spoke in her hair again. My daughter, tonight this is your sword. Use it well. From out of the night they came, shadow warriors with amorphous shapes and holes for their eyes and mouth. They attacked. Nandi whipped her sword back and forth, stabbing and thrusting through the demon's minions. The creature shrieked horribly as she stopped them, melting over her body, leaving a sticky, foul-smelly dew on her skin. They are too many. Her lungs burned, arms ached, but she fought on grim-faced. The castle seemed further away than ever. Suddenly, the ground beneath her parted like water. Warriors with the head of panthers and bodies of men rose like avenging spirits to fight alongside her. She reached the doorway of the castle. 
Unexpectedly, a strong push was all it took to open it. Inside the walls were smooth and white. Like the outside, the interior of the castle was made of bones. There were no lamps, but at the end of the hallway, a jewel glittered on an intricately carved ebony pedestal, illuminating all about her. Nandi walked slowly towards the stone. As she drew closer, the castle morphed into a structure of ivory and gold. Fine soft rugs lay cushioning her feet. Languid song caressed her ears. Come, Nandi, myriad voices whispered. Nandi, come. Feelings of power and sensuality washed over her. She felt the stone's longing. It wants me. Nandi stood before the jewel and saw herself inside it. Indomitable. Immortal. All this is yours, the voices whispered. Sweet Nandi, strong Nandi. Take me, fight with me at your side. Forever. She reached out to snatch the stone from the pedestal and hesitated. Take it, the voices whispered. Take it now, take it and live forever. Nandi lifted her arm and brought Ogun's sword down upon the jewel, shattering it. A hideous shriek flooded her ears. Asu's curled visage appeared, huge and diaphanous, his mouth stretched open in a scream. Shots flew past her like drops of blood. Inside, she saw faces, the souls of those trapped inside. She glimpsed her father, her mother, the elders, and Sully. The walls of the castle crumbled, screams echoing in her ears. Clutching Ogun's sword, Nandi turned and raced back the way she had come. Suddenly, Ogun was there as a panther. With his sword in one hand, she leaped on his back and wrapped the other about his neck. She awoke to find herself outside her village, Ogun at her side. The sword had vanished from her hand and now was coiled about his neck. Nandi looked at him with questioning eyes. Is it over? Are my people well now? It is done. When you destroyed the jewel, you freed the pieces of their spirits trapped inside. It was written that you were the only one who could do this. Your village is whole again. I understand. Once Hassan made them sick, he fragmented their souls and snatched them away from their bodies. A healthy spirit will not dwell inside a sick body. The war god nodded approvingly. He wanted your power for himself, and this was ultimately his defeat. He lowered his guard enough so that you could break the spell. I sent your village dreams. They will welcome you home with open arms. She stared at him incredulously. I've only been gone a few hours. Ogun read her mind. Time flows differently in the spirit realm. In this world, you have been gone for three days. Suddenly, Nani's face became hard, and she bared her teeth. I saw Asu, she hissed. He still lives. He is weak. There will be other battles. This one is over. She turned away, her brown eyes still thoughtful. Speak your heart, Nandi. I'm listening. I couldn't find the Assel's castle alone. Couldn't even defeat his warriors without you. Now she gazed into Ogun's black eyes. This was not my victory. It was yours. The god of war smiled his beautiful, terrible smile. What would have come from all my efforts if you had made the wrong choice? And the choice was yours alone to make. Nandi, you are a mighty warrior. But not all wars are fought with a sword. Go now, my daughter. You have been missed. (laughs) 
and welcome back. The story of the hero is powerful and really has a way of shining a light on both the best and the worst of what it means to be human. Our trials give way to victory or defeat, but the cost to the whole can be very high either way. I've been thinking a lot about this recently, and I've had to come to the conclusion that we as a whole will be stronger and changed by our experiences. Thank you very much, Valjean, for your story, and thank you very much, Eminette, for the time you spent narrating. Well done, both of you. Our next story is Heartless by Ed Ahern. Ed resumed writing after 40-odd years in foreign intelligence and international sales. He has his original wife, but advises that after 49 years, they're both out of warranty. He works the other side of writing at Bewildering Stories, where he sits on the review board and manages a posse of five review editors. Ed's had 140 stories and poems published so far, and a series of articles on fly fishing. His collected fairy and folk tales, The Witch Made Me Do It, was published by Gypsy Shadow Press. His novella, The Witch's Bane, was published by World Castle Publishing, and his collected fantasy and horror stories, Capricious Visions, was published by Gnome on Pig Press. Ed's currently working on a paranormal thriller novel tentatively titled The Rule of Chaos. Ed's story is read by Anthony Babington, a voice in the Internet's head, who looks almost, but not quite exactly how you'd expect him to. Having escaped from the sinister forces of Texas, he has retreated to an ingeniously disguised bunker in a secure, undisclosed location in Burnsville, Minnesota. His life goal is to someday annoy someone into letting him voice a part on a skate pod. But until then, he'd be happy to voice a project for you. Yes, you, in the checkered shirt. And now, Heartless. Tom Willman was born experiencing no strong feelings. In fact, no feelings at all. No love or affection, no hate or dislike, certainly no fear. The closest he came to emotions were pleasing or displeasing sensations. Tom's parents, desperate for a smile, had him tested for a litany of diseases, but he proved to be uncaringly above average. They quit trying to show Tom affection by the time he was six, and by the time he was ten were providing only what was legally required of them. He ate because the tastes were good and food kept him alive. He avoided the harmful and the idiotic, so no drugs or gluttony, but also no designer water or wandering chickens. He exercised and bathed because his body felt better, and exhibited an attractive trimness about which he was oblivious. Girls in high school viewed Tom's indifference as cool and his trimness as attractive. Feelings heightened once they discovered that his lack of emotion gave him extraordinary staying powers. Tom viewed his frequent sex acts as pleasant consensual exercise. The person who tried hardest to know Tom best was Arthur Lauston, the high school psychologist. Lauston, with no significant life of his own, compulsively coached people on how to live better. His recurring daydream was perching in a confessional and prescribing atonements. Tom was required to attend frequent sessions with Lauston, who toiled through hundreds of hours trying to etch Tom's stainless steel persona with the bristles of a verbal toothbrush. "'Tom, you appear to be neither sociopathic nor psychotic, but except for satisfying basic biological requirements, you're completely indifferent to your humanity.' "'What's your point, Mr. Lauston?' Lauston was desperate. He pulled out a large folding knife, flipped open the blade, and waved it in front of Tom. What would you do if I threatened to stab you? Run. And if you couldn't get out of the room? Ask somebody to reason with you. And if that didn't work? Hit you with this bookend. How do you feel about me right now? That question is inane. Early in his freshman year, a bully had cornered Tom on the football field. Tom let the boy hit him twice before retaliating, knowing that in order to avoid discipline he had to have the boy's aggression witnessed. Then he broke enough of the boy's bones that he would be unable to be aggressive again for several months. The onlookers noticed that Tom's expression had remained calm. 
At the graduation ceremony, Tom was approached by several girls and avoided by most boys. Tom perceived both the attention and avoidance as irrelevant. An unknown young woman was among those who approached. Mr. Willman, I'm Raisa Pandarapolis. I have a job offer for you. The young woman curved aesthetically and looked no older than he was, although her eyes had the worry lines of middle age. Ah. Am I correct that you'll be leaving home and are looking for work? Yes. Am I also correct that you've had difficulties with pre-employment screening? The human resources departments tell me that I'm inhuman. Not me. Please, join me for lunch while I explain my offer. Once seated in the restaurant, Tom began his questioning. What sort of job is it? I own and operate a... call it an entry portal, and need help running it. You'd be a gatekeeper slash doorman to handle the rush hour traffic. It's night shift work, with the traffic occurring between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. Outside of those hours, you're free to pursue your own interests, or do nothing at all. The clientele is a nasty lot, but can't harm you if you're careful. Given your indifference, I'm hoping that you can ignore their vicious comments. Tom's parents had ordered him to vacate their house immediately after graduation, so he needed work and a place to stay. What's it pay? Thirty dollars an hour, six nights a week. You stay at the house rent-free. Payment is in cash, off the books, so you won't need to pay taxes. You merely let the, uh, personalities in and out. They're universally ugly and surly, but you should be able to ignore their abrasive traits. Suspicion was a way of thinking which Tom's condition encouraged. That's three times minimum wage for a menial job. What's the catch? There are a couple niggling conditions of employment. You'll swear an oath of secrecy under penalty of immediate death, and failing to get the commuters in and out promptly is equally fatal. In other words, you treat them like cattle and keep your mouth shut. You're really quite well suited to the job. How long would I have to sign up for? Raisa smiled. His question meant he was leaning towards acceptance. The secrecy agreement is forever, but the initial term of employment is one year. Oh, and you can't have any visitors in the house, and can't bring in any kind of communication device, no phone, camera, or tablet. Having no emotional distractions, Tom's logical and intellectual capabilities were formidable. He reasoned that his expenses would be minimal, and at the end of a year he should have at least $50,000 in cash. For that kind of money it must be crooked. I've got no interest in going to jail and becoming somebody's bum boy. It's abnormal or paranormal, but not illegal. At worst you'd be driven crazy or torn to shreds. Am I the first person you've hired? No, there have been two others. A vicious sadist and a nearly catatonic recluse. They both died screaming in anguish, so I changed my hiring criteria. Tell you what, I'll stay with you for the first week. If you can't handle it, you'll get paid for the week and just have to keep your mouth shut. Tom was terminally neutral, but sensed Race's sharp-edged emotions. He assumed she'd lied and would kill him if he tried to leave after the first week. It was the only way she could be sure he wouldn't talk. But Tom lived entirely outside of human emotions, and doubted anything he encountered could break through to him. Raisa needed him, badly, or she wouldn't be making accommodations. All right, he said. We'll try it for a week. When and where should I show up? I'll pick you up this evening, she said. And did. They drove for almost an hour before stopping. Raisa walked Tom into a house and locked the door behind them. Tom looked around at a great room with shuttered windows that took up most of the ground floor. A large, jagged hole in the floor made most of the room unusable. Tom looked over the edge, but the hole dropped into blackness with no visible bottom. On one edge of the hole, a large circle and symbols had been painted on the wood floor. The circle contained a lectern, easy chair, and battery-operated lights. Where's the hatch or lid for this thing? It's, a uh, symbolic. Step into the circle and stand at the lectern. Tom did so, 
and saw there were two bronze tablets on the reading stand. At 11 p.m. you read the left-hand tablet. At 3 a.m. you read the right-hand tablet. What could be easier? Just make very sure you don't step outside the circle before 3 a.m. He stared at the tablets. The top half of each had unrecognizable characters. The bottom halves had English gibberish syllables. He glanced at Raisa. The top parts are in Mycenaean Greek, pre-Phoenician characters. That's for my use. The bottom half is the pronunciation guide in English. You don't need to know the meaning, but you do need to pronounce everything perfectly. Otherwise you'll be killed. Not by me, by the commuters. It's as if you'd let them off at the wrong stop. Imagine how annoyed you'd be. Sorry, you don't get annoyed, do you? No. Okay, I'll be killed if I step outside the circle while I'm working, and killed if I make a mistake in either reading. Recite one of them to me. Raisa stepped so close to Tom that he could feel her breath on his ear as she spoke. Tom turned his head to look at her. And you've been able to recite these for a long time without being hurt? Her expression deconstructed into sadness, as if she looked into the eyes of dead relatives. For a long time. I was just a happy, inquisitive girl, but look at me now, trapped timelessly with evil for company, never to know love or have children... Is it any wonder that I'm testy? Tom, emotionally clueless, said nothing. Raisa's face wrinkled into what he knew to be anger. All right, simpleton. Recite the incantations for me until I think you've got them down. Let's see if you can last the night. Raisa commandeered the easy chair, leaving Tom to stand at the lectern. By the third repetition, he pronounced the syllables correctly. Tom asked more questions. How many of these beings are there? Do you know your Christian Bible? Of course not. The phrase, My name is Legion, has no meaning for you. Thousands, Tom. Single entities transmute into several, and none. A swirling porridge of personified evils. Oh, except for one prissy little bitch. Who's that? The exception that makes everything worse. The hope that you can endure these defilements. Sorry, of course not you, Tom. How will I know when it's exactly 11 p.m.? There'll be a gong. You'll have three seconds to start or be burned to ash where you stand. Tom, of course, viewed death merely as a timing issue. Okay. I almost forgot. Once they see that it's you at the lectern and not me, some of them will probably double back and try to shock you into stepping out of the circle. You do, you die. Got it. Do I need to do anything between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m.? Stay alive. Oh, and the jug next to the lectern is in case you have to urinate. Do not, under any circumstances, piss into the pit. The gong rang, and Tom's mouth strained to utter the harsh sounds. The pit's blackness seemed to glisten, then break into shards. A separating odor washed into the room but neither Raisa nor Tom vomited. Shapes boiled out of the pit, changing without pause from deformities to demons to grotesqueries for which Tom had no descriptive words. They spoke. Fresh meat! A pretty boy this time! Raisa lusts for him! Play with us, pretty boy! Tom turned around and looked back into the room, now filled with apparitions. The shapes had exaggerated breasts and vulvas and penises. The smells of rotting overrode the aromas of rot. The shapes were now all pleasing, and Tom felt his skin tingle as tactile sensations seeped through the protective circle. He stood without words or expression. The shapes screamed and distorted themselves into broken, exposed bones and oozing lesions. The smell of pus ruled. Tom was curious, another of his few human traits and began to categorize the shapes and scents. The hoarse howling intensified at this indifference, punctuated by ear-shredding screams. Raisa sat quietly, watching the apparitions swirl. Tom got the impression that she was acquainted with all of them. After several minutes, they dispersed outwards through the walls of the house. 
Tom turned to Raysa and noticed that she was staring at his ass. Where are they going? Into your world to inflict pain and terror. There's never enough of them to go around. Ah, here comes Miss Prissy, late as always. A slender white shape emerged from the pit. The woman was gracefully formed, but Tom thought her to be androgynous. Who's that? Hope. The bitch that follows around after the evils and applies a little zinc oxide to the humans who've just been seared. Keeps them from committing suicide, which they'd be better off doing. A lurking apparition charged the protective circle, spewing yellow gobbets. But for Tom, the bile was merely sour snot, and he asked it, What's your name, slimeball? Raysa sucked in air. Careful. Exorcists ask for a demon's name, Tom. Doormen just keep their mouths shut. The slobbering evil figure was contorted with rage. Tom ignored it and stepped over to Raysa. They looked like teenagers on a first date. I think you've been going about this all wrong. Excuse me? For one thing, Pandoropolis sucks as an alias. Look, Pandy, we don't learn much in high school, but we do get some rudiments of mythology. All you've done for two millennia is run these ethereal bedbugs through shoots, when you could have been whipping them into something more interesting. It's past time for you to screw with their deformed little minds. You clearly hate the way you're doing things now. You can't talk to me like that! I'm a demigod! Don't think so. You're just a human trapped into being timeless. I doubt you've had sex for several hundred years. We could fix that, though. The chair is big enough. Raysa sputtered. I'm going to kill you right now! Don't think so. Let's let the week run out and see where it gets us. Raysa paused. What do you mean, screw with their minds? If you're bored and frustrated with a couple thousand years of herding evil cattle, think what they must feel like. What happens if you give them a day off? Or let them sleep in an extra half an hour? Or let them know they can work at half speed and you won't report them? Or, maybe best of all, let them concoct their own deviltry rather than using an obsolete playbook they're bored with? My curse is immutable. Seriously? You're already cursed. What more can happen to you? If something does happen, at least it would be a change. Tom reached over and touched Reese's shoulder. She didn't pull away. Tomorrow night I'll talk to one or two of them and see where we get to. You'll kill us both! You can't die, and I'm indifferent. The next night Tom picked out a blobular evil with open sores mounted like barnacles on an oyster shell. He turned to Reese. Okay, I can't control it without knowing its name. What is it? She huddled back in the easy chair. Alleputrius. Hey, Alleputrius. What are you tasked with tonight? The beast glowered but answered. Drunkenness that causes self-maiming accidents. And you do that every night? Yes, ape, since beyond memory. Okay. Tonight... You're doing initial drug addictions among middle-aged, overweight men. That's Falbrevia's job. She'll disembowel me. Might be an improvement. But tell her, slash it, that it's okay for you to change jobs for one night, and if she has any problems with it, to talk to me. Like all classic evils, Alleputrius had no sense of joy or contentment, but he had plenty of greed and thwarted envy. Wow. Okay, then. I'm on my way. An hour later, Falbrevia stormed in, and Tom mollified her by letting her cause bedwetting among adolescent girls at sleepovers. The assignment changes spiraled, and by 3 a.m., over 50 imps had been short-circuited. By the end of the week, over a thousand evils had been transposed, and even Tom's considerable analytical powers were strained keeping track. Hope kept wandering in and out of the pit in confusion. Raysa had begun laughing at the changes, and on day five they began sharing the easy chair in post-3am trysts. On the last day of the week, Raysa looked down at a naked Tom. I'm not going to kill you. I presumed as much. How many of these suckers are there? 
More than you can count, tight buns. Call it half a million. Tom noticed that the pit had started a rolling boil, throwing off steaming mounds of black pitch. Raysa, is it supposed to do that? Zeus, Rex, no! Watch out! An ebon figure rose from the pit and without hesitation floated into the mystical circle. Its voice was rolling thunder. I've received an employment discrimination complaint from Hope. That bitch, Raysa interjected. The thunder resumed. Hope's pretty dense, but I gather that you two have been shuffling my deck without permission. As the figure spoke, the pitch slid off it, leaving what looked like a nude, fat, saggy Arthur Lauston. Not much to look at, I know, it said. But it's the most distasteful image I could find in your mind. What am I going to do with you two rotting little animals? Killing you creates dysfunction, and if I administer excruciating pain, you'll lose focus during the procedures. Tom's expression had remained calm. You're the deus ex machina. One of them. You're missing out on a great opportunity. Lightning flashed, and the almost Arthur Lauston glared. Explain yourself very quickly. For two thousand years, the same evils have been inflicted on the same people, night after night. The humans get used to it. What we're doing is making the evils of the world truly random. The drug addict becomes a miser. The murderer becomes self-abusive. But just for a night. They'll never know what's coming next. The figure could be seen to think. It is the same amount of evil, after all, Tom added. Hmm. All right. Take a few hundred years to try it out. Let Hope in on the action so she'll get off my back. The figure vanished, and the pit resumed its impenetrable blackness. Tom turned to Rasa. For a being that powerful, it's really stupid, isn't it? Shh! Just enjoy things. It's like a party where we get to mess with all the guests. Tom paused. You understand that I'll never feel affection or love for you. That we'll always just be sexually active acquaintances? I've been in worse relationships. And welcome back. An amazing story and an excellent narration. Thank you to Ed for the story and Anthony for volunteering your time to narrate and edit it for us. For those of you who may not know and are curious, an average 40-minute story takes the narrator roughly four or five hours to read, record, and edit. We do this for free and love doing it. Right now, Tony and the District of Wonders family are working to pay us for some of our time and will with your help. Please, pop over to the District of Wonders Patreon site and support if you can. Thank you. Links to our authors and narrators' websites are in the show notes. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. As always, please leave us a review on iTunes, Acast, and other podcatchers, that way we can build our listenership and keep the stories flowing. Please remember that Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivative 4.0 international license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it, and be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators, well... Let's just remind the violators that the pit opens at 11 and doesn't close until 3. Again, thank you. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.